0: Public Works Steampunk Presents Jane Eyre Written by Charlotte Bronte With Steampunk Editions by R.A. Harding Read by Danita Feldman Chapter 2 In which Jane is imprisoned in the Red Room I resisted all the way, kicking and crying, a new thing for me which greatly strengthened the bad opinion Bessie and Miss Abbott had of me. The fact is... I was a trifle beside myself. I was conscious that a moment's mutiny had resulted in strange and hard penalties, and like any other rebel slave, I felt resolved in my desperation to go all lengths to resist. Hold her arms, Miss Abbott, she's like a mad cat. She's mad enough to be sent to Bridewell. Not even that madhouse could keep a child like this, For shame, for shame, cried the lady's maid. What shocking conduct, Miss Eyre, to strike a young gentleman, your benefactress's son, your young master. Master, how is he my master? Am I a servant? Am I an automaton at his beck and call? No, you are less than a servant, for you do nothing for your keep. And you are less than an automaton, for you speak when you have been told to be silent. There, sit down and think over your wickedness. They had got me by this time into the apartment indicated by Mrs Reed and had thrust me upon a stool. My impulse was to rise from it like a spring. Their two pair of hands arrested me instantly. If you don't sit still, you must be tied down, said Bessie. Miss Abbott, lend me your garters. She would break mine directly. Miss Abbott turned to divest a stout leg of her considerable garters. This preparation for bonds and the additional humiliation it inferred took a little of the excitement out of me. Don't take them off, I cried. I will not stir. To show I was earnest in this promise, I grasped the seat with both hands. Mind you don't, said Bessie, and when she saw that I was really subsiding, she loosened her hold of me. Then she and Miss Abbott stood with folded arms, looking darkly and doubtfully on my face, as incredulous of my sanity. She never did so before, at last, said Bessie, turning to Abbott. But it was always in her, was the reply. I've told Mrs. often my opinion about the child, and Mrs. agreed with me. She's a patchwork, underhand little thing. I never saw a girl of her age with so much deceit. Bessie did not respond. But after a moment's pause, she turned to me and said, You ought to be aware, Miss, that you are under obligations to Mrs. Reed. She keeps you. If she were to turn you out, you would have to go to the poorhouse, House, or worse, to the streets. I had nothing to say to these words, as they were not new to me. My very first memories included hints of the same kind. This reproach of my dependence had become a vague sing-song in my ear, very painful and crushing, but only half heard any more. Miss Abbott joined in. And you ought not to think yourself on an equality with the Mrs. Reader Master Reed because Mrs. Kindly allows you to be brought up with them. They will have a great deal of money, this floating manor, the estate and lands around, and you will have none. It is your place to be humble and to try to make yourself agreeable to them. What we tell you is for your good, added Bessie in a kind voice. You should try to be useful and pleasant. Then perhaps you would have a home here. But if you become passionate and rude, Mrs. will send you away, I am sure. Besides, said Miss Abbott, regarding me but speaking to Bessie, the gods will punish her. They might strike her dead in the midst of her tantrums and then where would she go and to what horrible life would she reincarnate to? Come, Bessie, we will leave her. I wouldn't have her heart for anything. Then turning on me, she said firmly, Say your prayers and your mantras, Miss Eyre, when you are by yourself for if you don't repent, some bad spirit might be permitted to come down the chimney and fetch you away. They went, shutting the door and locking it behind them. The red room was a square chamber, very seldom slept in except when there were by chance too many visitors at Gateshead Hall making it necessary to use the room, yet it was one of the largest and stateliest chambers in the mansion. A bed supported on massive pillars of mahogany hung with curtains of deep red damask stood in the centre. The two large windows with their blinds always drawn down were half shrouded in layers of similar drapery. The carpet was red The table at the foot of the bed was covered with a crimson cloth. The wardrobe, the toilet table, the chairs were of darkly polished old mahogany. Out of these deep surrounding shades rose high and glared white. The piled-up mattresses and pillows of the bed spread with a snowy Marseille counterpane. The other large piece of furniture was an ample cushioned easy chair near the head of the bed, also white, with a footstool before it and looking, I thought, like a pale throne. This room was chill because it seldom had a fire. It was silent because it was far from the nursery and kitchen, solemn because it was so seldom entered. The automaton housemaid alone came here on Saturdays to wipe from the mirrors and the furniture a week's quiet dust. And Mrs. Reed herself less often visited it to review the contents of a certain secret drawer in the wardrobe, where were stored parchments, her jewel casket, and a miniature of her deceased husband, who was the source of the spell which kept the Red Room so lonely in spite of its grandeur. Mr. Reed had been dead nine years. It was in this room he deteriorated as doctors attached machines to prolong his suffering until he breathed his last. Here he lay in state, from this place he was borne by the undertaker's men to the pyre to be cleansed in smoke and Since that day, a sense of dreary consecration had guarded it from frequent intrusion. My seat to which Bessie and the bitter Miss Abbott had left me riveted was a low ottoman near the marble chimney-piece. The bed rose before me to my right hand, there was the high, dark wardrobe. To my left were the curtain windows and a great looking-glass between them repeated the vacant majesty of the bed and room. I was not quite sure whether they had locked the door, and when I dared move, I got up and went to see. Alas, yes, no jail was ever more secure. Returning, I had to cross before the looking-glass. My fascinated glance involuntarily explored the picture it revealed. All looked colder and darker in the mirror than in reality, and the strange little figure there gazing at me with a white face and arms specking the gloom. I stepped closer to see a rare reflection of my own face, and examined that which made many look at me askance. My face was white and plain, but for a dull shimmer coming from the delicate cogs moving slowly on my upper right temple. The very wheels that controlled and focused my false eye at my unconscious mind's whim moved with a light tick that could be heard in the silence. The glass eye itself seeming to be made of magic and allowed me to see every detail despite the gloom of this dark room. This clockwork eye could, with great clarity, focus on the intricate pattern and stitching on the bedspread. In the little bit of light that filtered through the heavy curtains, I could see the very dust motes that, being agitated by my movements, swirled through the air as if responding to my own inner tumult. My hair was dishevelled from the scuffle, and I smoothed the strands along my right temple back into the tight pins to prevent them from falling in the slowly moving ocular gears. The experience of my hair and apparatus getting caught and twisted rendering me sightless in one eye and helpless until someone, usually Bessie, would help untangle the two and set my eye in motion again, had motivated me greatly to keep my hair orderly at a young age. In the mirror, my glittering eyes of fear moved where all else was still and had the effect of a real spirit. I thought I looked like one of the phantoms, half fairy, half imp, that Bessie's evening stories represented as coming out of lone, ferny dells in moors and appearing before the eyes of travellers, caused only mischief and sorrow. I returned to my stool. Superstition was with me at that moment, but I was not completely afraid, for my blood was still warm. The mood of my rebellion was still bracing me with its bitter vigour and I lapsed into a deep reverie of thought. All John Reed's violent tyrannies, all his sister's proud indifference, all his mother's aversion, all the servant's partiality rose in my disturbed mind. Why was I always suffering, always browbeaten, always accused, forever condemned? Why could I never please? Why was it useless to try to win anyone's favour? Eliza, who was headstrong and selfish, was respected. Georgiana, who had a spoiled temper, was universally indulged. Her beauty, her pink cheeks and golden curls seemed to delight all who looked at her and to purchase indemnity for every fault. John, no one thwarted, much less punished, though he twisted the necks of the pigeons, killed the little pea-chicks, set the dogs at the sheep, stripped the hot-house vines of their fruit, broke the buds of the choicest plants in the conservatory, tripped the automaton servants and laughed as they struggled to rise and spit off the edge of the manor on hapless shepherds and servants below. He called his mother old girl, bluntly disregarded her wishes, not unfrequently tore and spoiled her silk attire, and he was still her own darling. I dared commit no fault. I strove to fulfil every duty, and I was labelled naughty and tiresome, sullen and sneaking from morning to noon and from noon to night. My head still ached and bled with the blow and fall I had received. No one had reproved John for wantonly striking me. Yet because I had turned against him to defend myself, I was loaded with general criticism. "'Unjust! Unjust!' said my reason and resolve rose looking to achieve escape from insufferable oppression as running away, or if that could not be effected, never eating or drinking more and letting myself die. What a distress of soul was mine that dreary afternoon, how all my brain was in tumult and all my heart in insurrection, yet in what darkness, what dense ignorance was the mental battle fought. I could not answer the ceaseless inward question why I thus suffered. Now at the distance of many years, I see it clearly. I was a discord in Gateshead Hall. I was like nobody there. I had nothing in harmony with Mrs Reed or her children. They did not love me. In fact, as little did I love them. They were not required to regard with affection a thing that they could not sympathise with opposed to them in temperament, a useless thing, incapable of serving their interest or adding to their pleasure, a noxious thing that responded with indignation at their treatment, of contempt of their judgment. I know that had I been a sanguine, brilliant, careless, exacting, handsome, romping child, though equally dependent and friendless, Mrs. Reed would have endured my presence more pleasantly. Her children would have treated me as more of a playmate. The servants would have been less prone to make me the scapegoat of the nursery. Daylight began to forsake the red room. It was past four o'clock, and the beclouded afternoon was tending to twilight. I heard the rain still beating continuously on the staircase window, the lower vibrations as the hall lowered to rest upon the pylons as it did nightly, and the wind howling in the grove beneath. I grew by degrees cold as a stone, and then my courage sank. My habitual mood of humiliation, self-doubt, forlorn depression fell damp on the embers of my ebbing anger. Every person I knew said I was wicked, and perhaps I might be so, for hadn't I just entertained the thought of starving myself to death? That certainly was a crime. And was I fit to die? or was the vault under the shrine of Gateshead Church an inviting destination? In such vault, I had been told, did Mr. Reed lie buried instead of cremated as was custom, and led by this thought to recall him, I dwelt on it with gathering dread. I could not remember him, but I knew that he was my own uncle, my mother's brother, that he had taken me when a parentless injured infant to his house And that in his last moments he had required a promise of Mrs Reed that she would care and keep me as one of her own children. Mrs Reed probably considered that she had kept this promise, and so she had, I dare say, as well as her nature would permit her. But how could she really like a child unconnected with her after her husband's death by any tie? It must have been most irksome to find herself bound by a hard-run pledge to stand in the stead of a parent to a strange child she could not love and to see an uncongenial alien permanently intruded on her own family group. A singular notion dawned upon me. I doubted not, never doubted, that if Mr. Reed had been alive, he would have treated me kindly, and now, as I sat looking at the white bed and darkening walls, occasionally also turning a fascinated eye towards the dimly gleaming mirror, I began to recall what I had heard of dead men troubled by the breaking of their last wishes, revisiting the earth before reincarnating to punish the guilty and avenge the oppressed. And I thought Mr. Reed's spirit, still bound to the earth and not yet passed on to another life, harassed by the wrongs of his sister's child, might leave his spirit wandering and rise before me in this room. I wiped my tears and hushed my sobs, fearful that any sign of violent grief might waken his spirit's voice to comfort me, or elicit from the gloom some haloed face bending over me with strange pity. This idea, which might have been meant to comfort me, I felt would be terrifying to see. With all my might, I endeavoured to calm. I reached into my pocket and with trembling fingers retrieved my prayer beads, which rattled a little as I began to say my mantras to Lord Krishna and Lord Jesus. Shaking my hair from my eyes, I lifted my head and tried to look boldly round the dark room. At this moment, a light gleamed on the wall. The gears on my eye ticked rapidly as the aperture focused quickly in and out, making the room seem big and far away at the same moment. Was it? I asked myself, a ray from the moon penetrating some gap in the curtains. No, moonlight was still and this moved. While I gazed, it glided up to the ceiling and quivered over my head. I can now guess readily that this streak of light was in all likelihood a gleam from a lantern carried by someone across the lawn. But then, prepared as my mind was for horror, shaken as my nerves were by agitation, I thought the swift darting beam was a sign of some coming vision from another world. My heart beat thick, my head grew hot, a sound filled my ears which I deemed the rushing of wings. Something seemed near me, I was oppressed, suffocated, endurance broke down. I rushed to the door and screamed with all the fear that filled my body and shook the lock in desperate effort.' Steps came running along the outer passage. The key turned. Bessie and Abbott entered. Miss Eyre, are you ill? said Bessie. What a dreadful noise! It went right through me, exclaimed Abbott. Take me out! Let me go into the nursery, was my cry. What for? Are you hurt? Have you seen something? Again demanded Bessie. Oh, I saw a light, and I thought a ghost would come. I had now got hold of Bessie's hand, and she did not snatch it from me. She has screamed out on purpose, declared Abbott in some disgust. "'And what a scream! If she had been in great pain, one would have excused it, "'but she only wanted to bring us all here. I know her naughty tricks.' "'What is all this?' demanded another voice peremptorily. "'And Mrs. Reed came along the corridor, her cap flying wide, her gown rustling stormily. "'Abbott and Bessie, I believe I gave orders that Jane Eyre should be left in the Red Room till I came to her myself.' "'Miss Jane, scream so loud, ma'am,' pleaded Bessie. "'Let her go,' was the only answer. "'Loose Bessie's hand, child. "'You cannot succeed in getting out by these means. "'Be assured. "'I abhor deceit, particularly in children. "'It is my duty to show you that tricks will not work. "'You will now stay here an hour longer, "'and it is only on condition of perfect submission and stillness "'that I shall let you out then.' Oh, Aunt! have pity! forgive me! I cannot endure it. Let me be punished some other way. I shall be killed if silence this violence is almost repulsive, and so no doubt she felt it. I was a precocious actress in her eyes. she sincerely looked on me as a passionate, mean-spirited, and deceitful child. Bessie and Abbott, having retreated, Mrs. Reed, impatient of my now frantic anguish and wild sobs. Abruptly thrust me back in the room and locked me in without father parley. I heard her sweeping away, and soon after she was gone, I suppose I had a type of fit. Unconsciousness closed the scene. Thank you for listening to this chapter of Public Works Steampunk Presents Jane Eyre. This book is copyright 2021 by R.A. Harding. If you enjoy this podcast, please leave a review. The music box intro and outro was recorded by Nicholas Struski. If you would like to read the author's notes on the chapter or order the book, please go to publicworkssteampunk.com. And while you're there, join the mailing list to get a one-of-a-kind infographic about the book and more. Farewell for the present.